Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me as we continue our worship. Our Father, it is, it's good, it is right, it is proper that in worshiping you, we should be reminded of your faithfulness. We do so often lose sight of that. Not so much in our theology, but in our minds and in our hearts, in the, in the lives that we live day by day. It's so easy for us to fret, to worry, to become anxious, to be distracted, to look anxiously about us and forget that you are he, the Holy One of Israel. The God who is righteous because he is faithful, the God whose righteousness is bound up in his faithfulness, the God who is true altogether, the God who keeps covenant, the God who will accomplish all his good pleasure, all his good purposes, ultimately to sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus our Lord. And what you have accomplished in him, the glory that is bound up in the ascended and enthroned Lord is our confidence, our surety, that the kingdom that you have put in place in him will be completed. And one day it will take everything into its grasp, the renewal of all things. And so, Father, I pray as we gather as your people that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts. Even in this consideration now that you will hold our minds and that you will fill our hearts as we prepare to come to the table, this marvelous gift that Jesus gave to his church. I pray that we would be truly encouraged and edified and truly made ready to come and partake in that rich provision. So I pray that you would attend to my words. I pray that you would attend to the hearing, the minds, the hearts of all present. As Colin prayed, I pray also that you will free us of all distraction, all care, all things that would keep us from worshiping you with mind, heart, and soul in this time that we have by your good providence set apart to you. So meet us, continue, Father, to build us up. We ask all these things with the confidence that is ours in Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we come to the table today and just thinking about where we've been in Hebrews 11 and the consideration of the writer making his case, Uh, for Jesus' accomplishment and his supremacy over all things, it it struck me in thinking about this even while we were gone last week that rather than returning directly to Hebrews, I'd like to, in a sense, uh, build upon what we've seen and, and consider in the light of what we've looked at even with respect to the Passover and the Exodus, this thing that we call the Lord's Table. I've titled this Keeping the Feast, Unveiling the Glory of the Lord's Table. And there's probably nothing more familiar to us as Christians if we've uh, been in the church for any length of time than this thing called the Lord's Table, whether we observe it weekly or monthly or quarterly or however we do it. 
All Christians have some familiarity with this thing called the Lord's Table, but I would argue that, as with so many things that are a part of our Christian life, very many, I think, have only a very narrow sense of the significance of the table, what it really represents, what it really means to us as the gift of God. And as I've thought about it, I, 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 I think there are probably some ways in which we commonly think about the table. Uh, for many, particularly on the theological side of things, the emphasis tends to be on the elements themselves, the significance of the elements themselves. These ideas of consubstantiation or transubstantiation or symbolic presence. What is the relationship of Jesus to these elements that we partake in? And even among Messianic Christians, if you know any Christians who have more of a Messianic uh, Jewish sort of orientation, it's the same kind of thing, but in a slightly different way. Very much associated with the Pesach, the, the Passover ordinance, and the elements associated with that. Things like, you know, the, the sacrificed lamb with no broken, broken bones. The uh, matzah that is pierced and striped, the symbolism of the elements and the way that they're used, those sorts of ideas, the afikomen, the, the, the bread that's broken and hidden and brought out at the end of the, the Passover Seder. And if you've ever uh, been as a Christian a part of a Passover Seder, you know that all of those components and the elements associated with it are interpreted in terms of Jesus and his sacrifice at Calvary. I think probably more generally, Christians tend to say, well, the Lord's table is about the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's not that any of those things are wrong. And obviously to think of the the table in terms of Christ's sacrificial death is absolutely vital. But I think the way that we tend to think about the table widely in Christian circles underscores the fact that we really don't understand or think about the table as it is situated in the larger salvation historical story. And by the salvation historical story, I mean the unfolding of God's purposes and the way in which he has caused those purposes to be fulfilled in Jesus our Lord. The scriptures are the record of the intent of God for his world and the way in which he has accomplished that intent, building towards and finally reaching its climax in Jesus himself. And I would argue that to the extent that we don't understand the table in its own salvation historical context, we really don't understand it the way Jesus intended his Jewish disciples to understand it, the understanding that they themselves had. Because they understood what Jesus was doing in the upper room very much in terms of their own place as Jews in the salvation history. And the connection with Hebrews is that I hope in in going through the book of Hebrews, we have, if we've seen nothing else, we've at least seen the fact that everything about the person and the work of Christ, the person of Jesus, the incarnation, the whole of the Christ event from incarnation to enthronement has to be understood, has to be viewed and interpreted through the scriptures as they record this thing that we call the salvation history. That salvation history that reached its climax and has attained its fulfillment in Jesus himself. Jesus said to his generation, you search the scriptures because you believe in them, you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify of me. And he very much cultivated this understanding of the scriptures that all of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings testify of him. You see on the Emmaus Road where he opens the eyes of the disciples 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he shows them all the things in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus comes into the world and he says all of the scriptures, which are the record of the whole of God's purposes being outworked in the world through specifically the Abrahamic people, the children of Israel, all of that was pointing to and building the case for and ultimately now to reach its fulfillment in relation to me. That's the sense in which he can say, if you knew the scriptures, you would recognize me. And that is the perspective that Jesus himself affirmed. He's the one that cultivated that perspective in his disciples. And as they went out and proclaimed him as Messiah from all the scriptures, that's how they did it. They didn't just turn to Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 and quote a couple proof texts. They reasoned through the whole of the scriptures as the telling of the story of the purpose of God, showing how all of that had become yes and amen in Jesus, who is the Messiah, the promised one. Jesus taught them to think that way. And why that's important here is because that clearly lies behind his intentional choice to associate his cross event, his self-offering, with this thing we call Passover. And as we've even considered the Passover in the light of Hebrews chapter 11... It's very fitting here to flesh that out a little bit more. And I don't know how much you think about the fact, I mean, we we can say, okay, yes, Jesus died at Passover time, but do we understand the intentionality of that and the reason for that intentionality? Luke records, probably more than the other gospel writers, he, he gives a very explicit sense to that intent of Christ. And he says, knowing that the time of his ascension was near, he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Specifically in connection with Passover. Jesus chose Passover as the time in which he would offer himself, as the context in which his cross work and its significance and outcome would be made known to his disciples and through them ultimately to the world through the proclamation of the good news. Passover was deeply significant in Jesus' own sense of his identity and vocation, his calling as the one in whom all of the scriptures, all of the purposes of God are to be fulfilled. He didn't pick the Day of Atonement though he could have, he picked Passover. He wanted his disciples to interpret what was going to happen and the outcome of it through their own understanding of Passover, not as it sits in itself, but as it functioned within the story of Israel, as it functioned within their own life, their own history. And that's really what the upper room accounts are all about. We spent a long time in John's gospel because he gives the most time to the upper room discourse. But that's the context in which Jesus is instructing his disciples. I've said so many times that what he's doing there is trying to help his disciples understand in advance, give some context for understanding and and dealing with this thing that's going to happen the next day that they have no category for. They had no way to understand the idea of a crucified Messiah. Messiah is supposed to triumph over the enemies of God and establish God's kingdom, not fall subject to the oppressors whom he is supposed to conquer not be put to death, and certainly not to be put to death at the hands of the Romans. The disciples, the twelve, had no way to understand what was coming. And what Jesus is doing in the upper room, through the meal, through the things he does, through the things he says, through the symbolic actions, what he's doing is trying to help them to understand the meaning, the significance, ultimately the purpose and outcome of what it is that he's going to be doing the next day. Jesus perceived his own calling and work in terms of the Passover. 
and its place in Israel's history and in Israel's hope as the Abrahamic people. Passover was central to Israel's hope as the Abrahamic people. And that's consistent with the way the Bible treats, the Old Testament scriptures treat this thing of Passover. I mentioned before when we were dealing with that in Hebrews 11, Passover comes to the forefront at at significant points in Israel's history. When they are about to enter the land, the last thing that they do before crossing the Jordan is celebrate the Passover. And in the revivals under Josiah and Hezekiah, those revivals are epitomized in a Passover celebration that was previously unknown, a glorious Passover celebration. You see, even in Ezekiel's prophecy of the future renewal that is to come at the end of Ezekiel's prophecy, one of the things that is mentioned there is a glorious Passover celebration. Passover is fundamental in that sense. And Jesus wanted his disciples to understand the meaning of what was coming, and that meant that they would understand it in terms of this thing of Passover. And therefore, the Passover becomes the context for us to even begin to understand this thing that we call the Lord's table. We all know there's a connection between Passover and the Lord's table, but we're not often sure what exactly that connection is. So in terms of Israel's life, as I said, Passover was fundamental to the Jewish people's self-understanding. We saw in Hebrews 11 that Passover was represented a new birth. It was life out of death. God rearranged the calendar, Israel's calendar, around the Passover and the exodus that came from it. This will be the first of months for you. Passover and the exodus that followed from it represented the birth of the Abrahamic people, life out of death, the beginning of its life with God. And the Israelites understood that their status, their identity as the covenant family of Abraham and all that was bound up in that, they understood that relationship with God as his covenant children as grounded in that new birth associated with the Passover. That's why Passover in Israel's history was always associated with times of revival and renewal or a new season, something new and grand in the, in the working out of God's purposes for them. Israel was Yahweh's covenant son. Israel is my beloved son. Let my son go that he might worship me in the wilderness. Israel was Yahweh's covenant son, but precisely because God is faithful to his oath to Abraham. God had made a covenant with Abraham that he would remain faithful to. And he would take his descendants, Abraham's descendants, to be his people, and he would be their God. And he would bring them to dwell with him. And through them, he would cause all the families of the earth to come to know him. His blessing upon the estranged world would come through the Abrahamic people. That was Israel's sonship. But its sonship was grounded in the fact that God is a savior. This is where Passover comes in. Passover taught them that their sonship was grounded in the God who is the deliverer of his people, according to his faithfulness to his oath to Abraham. We saw that when Moses went to Egypt, it was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've remembered my covenant. And now the time has come to do this great work of deliverance and in gathering. And it's going to come through a mighty work of judgment and a new birth. And you see this even in the preamble to the covenant that ratified that relationship, what we call the, the Mosaic Covenant or the covenant at Sinai. How does God introduce himself in that covenant? I am the Lord God. I am Yahweh, your God, the God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. 
I am the deliverer God. I am the God who gives freedom and gives life. My fatherhood, your sonship, is grounded in understanding me in that way. I am the delivering God. I am the faithful God. And because God was faithful in his purposes, promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, Yahweh was going to see to it that Israel fulfilled its own calling. Why did God take a people and make them his elect son. It was for a purpose. It was for a purpose. It wasn't random. It wasn't arbitrary. It was for a purpose. And God was going to see to it. I'm, again, talking about how the Jewish people at the time, even that Jesus was doing this thing in the upper room, the way his disciples would have understood Passover, and now they're trying to rethink it in the light of the things he's saying and doing. They understood that Passover represented the faithfulness of God to Abraham, a new birth by which Israel became son in a way that they would be his his people to be with him and to mediate the knowledge of him to all the earth's families. And because he was faithful to that purpose, he would see to it that Israel fulfilled its calling in spite of its incorrigible unbelief and rebellion. This is the story of the Old Testament. God elected Israel in Abraham to be his son for the sake of the nations, and Israel could not fulfill its sonship because it was unfaithful. It could not fulfill its sonship. And the promise of God because of this faithfulness to Abraham is that he will see to it that Israel fulfills its own calling. And so if we look at the Old Testament scriptures and its storyline, there are two kind of core dimensions to it. The first is the, the inescapable for all of the little bits of ups and downs, there is, an, there is a constant trajectory of Israel towards desolation, captivity, exile. It happened in a certain sense even within the land during the time of the judges. A kind of captivity in the land, subjuga- subjugation to Gentile powers, Canaanite powers. But ultimately, there's the dividing of the nation. There's the northern kingdom going into captivity. There's the southern kingdom going into captivity. The trajectory of the Son of God was towards desolation, judgment, exile, captivity. The second core theme is that that would not be the last word. In itself, Israel was incorrigible. It could not fulfill its election, its calling. But God would not have that be the last word. He would arise. He would see to it that Israel fulfilled its calling. Desolation, exile, captivity were coming, but the day would come when Yahweh would arise and he would again deliver That was Israel's enduring hope. And that hope was bound up in the Passover. You see, as time goes on, the prophets, and particularly in a more explicit way, Isaiah himself speaks about just as God in the past, for the sake of his faithfulness to his covenant, arose and delivered Abraham's offspring from the land of Egypt, so a day is coming in the future when God will do the same thing again. The covenant people of Israel have gone into exile and captivity. And even though parts of of Judah and parts of Israel in the north came back and and again made their home in the land of Judea and they rebuilt the temple and, and ultimately rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, they still remained in exile. And I've emphasized this a lot. We say, well, the exile ended when they all came back. Exile was not a geographical thing. It was a relational thing. And you see this in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. How long, Lord? You said 70 years and you would restore your captivity. And God sends his angel to say, it's 77s. 
And I'm not going to go through all of that, but you see the same thing in Nehemiah. After the temple's been rebuilt for about 100 years, well, 70 years, 60 years, after the city walls have been rebuilt, Nehemiah says in his prayer, we remain in exile to this day. We remain slaves to this day. And when Jesus comes into the world every year as Israel is celebrating its Passover, they're looking back to the God who delivered them once and trusting what he has said through his prophets that a day will come when he will arise again. And he will liberate. He will end Israel's exile by ending the thing that caused the exile, which was their covenant unfaithfulness. This is what the forgiveness of sins is all about. Yahweh will arise and he will deal with that so that now he can regather and restore his people to himself. End their exile. Israel will become Israel indeed and fulfill its calling on behalf of the world. When Yahweh arises and again liberates them, cleanses, reconciles them, regathers regathers them to himself. He had left them barren. He had left Zion, his covenant bride, devoid of children. But he says, when I restore her, I will give her more children. He says in Isaiah 54 to Zion, expand your tent curtains, lengthen your cords, strengthen the pegs. You have to enlarge your environs because when I restore you, I'm going to give you children drawn not just from Israel and Judah, but from all the families of the earth. This is at the heart of of Isaiah's prophecy in the larger sense. But this is the core of the last third, 40 through 66. And certainly if you look just at 49 through 55... Of Isaiah, this is the key theme that you see. And these new children drawn from all the families of the earth would prove faithful, whereas the former children were unfaithful and so were sent away and were made desolate and sent into captivity. When Yahweh arises in another Passover, in another Exodus event, then those children that come forth from that work will be faithful. They will be truly his children. And once again, he will establish his sanctuary in their midst and he will inhabit it. Yes, they rebuilt the temple and completed it in 516 BC, but you don't see anywhere after that this thing of the glory of God coming and inhabiting his temple. When Moses completed the sanctuary at the end of Exodus, the glory of God descends and fills that tabernacle. When Solomon builds the temple, you see the glory of God descend and fill the temple. They build a second temple, silence. Yahweh hasn't returned. Israel remains in exile. They will not be restored to him until their covenant unfaithfulness is dealt with, until the forgiveness of sins and covenant renewal are put in place. And what the prophets say is that all of that would be accomplished in connection with a messianic figure, a son, servant, disciple, witness who would come. And who in himself, in some mysterious way that they weren't sure how it would work, but this one who would come would embody Israel in himself, such that God's oath that Israel will be my instrument on behalf of the world, the Abrahamic offspring will be this faithful son on behalf of the world. The way in which God would accomplish that is somehow by embodying the family of Israel, the Abrahamic people, in this faithful seed promised to Abraham. This is what Paul deals with in Galatians 3. But again, this is the heart of Isaiah's prophecy and the other prophets as well. So Israel's scriptures throughout, and therefore the Jewish history that Jesus' disciples understood, those scriptures anticipated, promised, built the case for the coming day when Yahweh would again arise and accomplish his eternal intent for his creation, what the prophets called the coming of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus comes into the world and he starts proclaiming the good news, he doesn't say, let me tell you how you can go to heaven when you die. 
he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God. That what God had been promising all along, that time has now come. He is the Messiah of Israel. And Jesus understood that this whole story, this whole promise, this whole building of the case for the day when God would do this mighty work, he understood that he was the focal point of that mighty work. And he understood that Passover slash Exodus was the great prefiguring event. That's why he chose Passover because there was no more accurate, more succinct, more precise way for him to express the meaning of what they were going to see the next day when he hung on that cross with the placard over his head, the king of the Jews. So what does this mean then for the Lord's table? Well, again, Jesus intended that his apostles, that the 12 would understand his death, which was coming the next day, and the outcome of it through the lens of the Passover and through God's promise of a new exodus and a renewed covenant union. And if he intended that for the 12, he intends it for us as well. He intends it for every believer from that point forward. That we would understand the self-giving of the Messiah and what came from that in terms of the Passover. And it's with that in mind that he instituted the table. Not merely as drawing upon or somehow reflecting back on this thing called the Passover and the ordinance that the Jews celebrated up until that time, but as fulfilling and transforming that ordinance. Jesus didn't just say, my death is going to be something like this Passover thing. But in fact, what was coming was to what, what he was going to endure and what was going to come from that was actually the fulfillment of what the Passover was all about. And it, by not just fulfilling it, but in a way that transformed it, by Christifying it, if I can use that term. The Passover and the Exodus were grounded in, they were framed by, interpreted through various surrounding themes that the Jews understood. And Jesus is now working from those themes, because it's not just the Passover ordinance, it's what it represents in the larger structure of Israel's life and calling and God's purposes. And Jesus is causing his disciples to understand that all of those things are now being transformed in relation to me. Some of those things, and there are many things, but kind of the fundamental things would be these with respect to the surrounding themes or ideas tied to Passover. One is covenant election, covenant election and vocation or calling, election and calling. The second is this idea of exile and captivity. And then thirdly, the promises of God bound up in that, which are the promise of a realized sonship, a realized inheritance, a realized mutual inhabitation. We saw that again when we considered Passover. What was Passover about? It wasn't just God saying, I'm I'm really sad that you've been enslaved and oppressed, and I don't want to see that, so I'm going to set you free. It was a mighty work of deliverance to bring them to himself. That's what you see in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. God is delivering us, they sang, to bring us to his holy mountain to dwell with him in his sanctuary land. And the first thing God does when he brings them to Sinai is he says, take up a contribution to build me a sanctuary that I would dwell in your midst. This was about inheritance tied to sonship that would ultimately bring about a mutual inhabitation of father and son. Those are some of the key themes in Passover. And again, Jesus is transforming those things in relation to himself. The significance of those things is now Christified. And the table, the commemorative meal, testifies to that transformation. 
So that means that we have to understand the Lord's table in terms of those themes that were at the heart of Passover. But, but as they're fulfilled, thank you, and as they're transformed, <clears throat> as they're transformed in Jesus himself. So what about this idea of covenant election and vocation? Well, an easy way to th- get right to it is Paul's statement in Ephesians that we were chosen in Christ unto good works. Viewed through the lens of the idea of Israel's covenant election and vocation, we don't say, oh, God has saved me so that I can live a moral life. That's not what chosen in Christ unto good works is all about. Election is a functional category. It's it's not, in the first instance, a salvific thing. It's a functional thing. It's a consecration or a marking out for a certain purpose, for a certain function, for a certain thing. And Christian election and and, and the function of that election are a matter of participating in Jesus' election and in his vocation as the seed of Abraham. That's Galatians 3. How has Jesus transformed this idea of election and vocation in that way? Chosen in Christ unto good works. What are these good works? The works of Christiformity, the works of the Christ life and the Christ triumph in the world. So Jesus himself was embodying in himself Israel's identity and its vocation. He was the election of Israel. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 3, when God made his covenant with Abraham and his seed, he didn't say seeds as many, but seed is one, the Messiah. He wasn't denying Israel's election in any sense. He's saying it ultimately looked to the one who would embody and fulfill Israel itself. Jesus embodied Israel's identity and vocation in order that that identity and vocation would be realized in the Israel he would reconstitute in himself. I'm not trying to be complicated here, but these are things that are at the very heart of, again, how we have to think about the table. Paul says in his Ephesian epistle that this Christ who's exalted and who has everything in subjection under his feet has made the church to be his fullness. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the seed of Abraham. But how does he carry out the Abrahamic vocation of ministering the knowledge and the blessing of God to all the earth's families? He does that through his body, his fullness, in which he is all in all. He does that through his church. This is really what the Great Commission, as we call it, is all about in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? Jesus fulfills his own vocation, his own calling as the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, through the people that he has grafted into himself, into his body. So this idea of Covenant election and calling are transformed in Jesus for those who stand on this side of that transformation. As he reconstitutes covenant election in the covenant people in himself. The second theme of liberation from exile and captivity. What happened in Egypt presupposed what stood behind it, which is what we see in the first instance in Genesis. The idea of exile and captivity didn't begin in Egypt. It began with the fall. We see that in the expulsion of Adam and Eve from Eden, exiled from God. And the whole creation is, in a sense, exiled from God because it stands in relation to God through human beings. That's what we call the curse, the curse of estrangement, the curse of alienation. 
And so the promise of the second exodus, even as Israel understood that in relation to itself, looked beyond, it drew upon the Egyptian counterpart in in history, but it looked beyond that to God's intent to liberate the whole creation. You see this in Isaiah's prophecy and the other prophets. The language of renewal, right? When Yahweh does this work, then the lion will lie down with the lamb, you know, and the child will play by the hole of, hole, uh, the, hole of the cobra. And they will not hurt or kill in all my holy mountain, but the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. A new creation, a renewing of all things. The exile and the, the idea of ending exile through a new Passover wasn't just about the Jewish people, it was about the whole creation, the Christifying of the idea of exile. And Jesus' disciples understood that. That when God did for Israel what he had promised to do in this new work of liberation and forgiveness and covenant renewal, then Israel would become for the world what God intended it to be. And ultimately the messianic kingdom would take the whole world into its grasp. So also the idea of covenant sonship and inheritance and mutual inhabitation were transformed in the Christ event. We see that now covenant sonship is sharing in Jesus' sonship. Sons in the Son. Christ as the last Adam, the new man, sharing in his resurrection life, sharing in his resurrection glory. This is what Paul deals with in Romans. It's what he deals with in 1 Corinthians 15. Already we are raised up in Christ, seated in the heavenly realm in him. And the resurrection of the inner man is the promise, the surety of the resurrection of the outer man, of the body that is to come at the last day. The outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. He raised us up, seated us in the heavenly realm in him. You died, your lives are hidden with Christ in God, right? And so this idea of sonship is sharing in the glory of the Messiah who is the resurrected, ascended, enthroned, ruling man. And that speaks to how it is, what is our inheritance. Passover was about God giving to Israel the inheritance that he had pledged to it. Well, what is this inheritance that now this new Passover in Christ has accomplished? We become heirs of creational lordship. If you will, the human destiny that God appointed human beings for. What are we heirs of? We're heirs of all that Christ has inherited, right? Romans 8. All that Jesus has inherited, we are heirs of. We are joint heirs with him. And then lastly, this thing of mutual inhabitation. God delivered Israel in order to bring them to be with him as sons to a father dwelling with him in his sanctuary land. And as that theme has been transformed in Christ, it's not us being brought near to God, some kind of proximity to him. It's that we now are taken up to dwell inside of his true sanctuary that is the Messiah himself. Paul says we, Jew and Gentile, are being built together to be the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Peter says, you as living stones, you've come to the living stone, and in him you are being made into a spiritual sanctuary, a spiritual house, that in that way you offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. The forming of the sanctuary of God on Christ the cornerstone. That's how this theme of mutual inhabitation is transformed in the Messiah. So liberation from exile, in gathering, conquering of the powers, all of these things, sonship, inheritance, inhabitation, all of those Passover themes are transformed in Jesus. So as we come to the table, I just want to draw out a few implications for us to think about. Because the table speaks to these transformed ideas.
It's not that it doesn't, it doesn't speak to Christ shed blood and his broken body, but we could ask the question, so what? Okay, so he shed his blood. Okay, so his body was broken, so what? Well, that's how we get saved. Okay, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? You see, we have to understand these things within the larger story that is fulfilled and transformed in Jesus himself. So the table speaks to liberation from bondage, just as the Passover did. But in a certain sense, as liberation exists and is true in Jesus. What do I mean by that? It's not just deliverance from guilt. It's not just deliverance from sin. It's not just deliverance from condemnation. It's liberation unto and into new creation. It's a liberation unto becoming a new kind of human being. If you will, it's a liberation unto slavery, but a different kind of slavery. It's not liberation unto autonomy. It's not liberation unto go and, and have, a, have a wonderful life. See, for Israel, it wasn't here, I'm, I'm taking the yokes of your slavery off of you. Now go and have a wonderful life. And in Jesus, it's not that either. It's not, oh, I'm forgiven. Now I can get on with my life. It's liberation into a new way of being human, which is called bond slavery. Peter says, live as free men, but a freedom that frees you up to live as bond slaves of God. Paul told the Galatians that it's for freedom that Christ sets you free. Don't let yourselves be yoked again into bondage, but understand that this freedom is its own kind of bond slavery. Why? Because you died, your lives are hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. That's a new kind of definition that pertains to every aspect of our lives. Go back and read Romans 6 through that lens. All of Romans up to chapter 6 is all indicatives. What's true? What's true? What's true? What's true? What God has done? Who you are? What this is all about? And then finally in chapter 11 or chapter 6 is where for the first time he gives a, a, an imperative, a directive, and that directive is reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You were crucified with Christ. You were put to death. You are, you've been raised to walk in newness of life. You see, it, there is a definition. There is a constraint. It's a liberty that is the bond slavery, that is the authentic intimacy bind, being bound over intimately to God as true children, sons in the son. Israel was never that kind of a son. The table also speaks to our inheritance. And I know I say this a lot, but it's very important. That inheritance is not a future eternity in some foreign nebulous realm that we call heaven. That's an innovation of the medieval period in the modern age. Our inheritance is not a future eternity in some foreign nebulous place called heaven, but the human destiny of vice regency, the human destiny of ruling over the works of God's hands in his life, in his name, with his mind, in his love. Our inheritance is to be heirs of all Christ is heir to. What is he heir of? He's heir of all things. All things. As Lord of all. As ruler over all. That's our destiny. I've stressed that throughout Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews keeps emphasizing the exaltation of the Messiah to say that's your destiny. You're already raised up in him. You're already seated in that realm of new human existence in him. And it will be consummated. It's a faithful saying, Paul says, if we suffer with him as sharers in him, we will reign with him. 
Not a disembodied, floating on a cloud, eating cream cheese in a place called heaven forever. Whatever we think is coming. It's not that. And so also the table speaks to our calling. As members of God's renewed Abrahamic family... Paul says what? If you belong to the Messiah, then you're sons of Abraham and heirs of the promises made to him. As members of Abraham's true family that is in the true seed of Abraham, the Messiah himself, as members of that family, as members of that family, we are called to fulfill the Abrahamic vocation in the world. That's what this testimony of the gospel is all about. It's not good advice to people of how they can get saved. It is the proclamation of what God has done. He has fulfilled his promises to Abraham, bound up in the Messiah, and we are the ones who testify of that. And the key to understanding these things rightly and living them out, because living them out is what the table reminds us of, who we are and what it is to live authentically in this way. The key to that is to recognize how all of these things are yes and amen in Jesus. He hasn't simply done something that we're the beneficiaries of. He is the substance of God's accomplishment, and we are sharers in that by sharing in him. So our liberation from bondage to become bond slaves of God is precisely our participation in his triumph through his death and his glorification as true image son. This is what Ephesians 1 and 2 are emphasizing. This is what Romans 6 is all about. And our inheritance is precisely our share in Jesus' inheritance. Just like our resurrection, it's not he's raised, we get to be raised. He is resurrection. Our resurrection is sharing in his resurrection. Our life is sharing in his life. Our inheritance is sharing in his inheritance. Our liberation is sharing in his liberation as he bore our condemnation, as he bore the curse in himself. And our calling, our lives that we are called to, this thing of our vocation, if you will, our testifying of the good news of God's triumph and God's reign as we are the first fruits. We are the living, walking, breathing evidence of God's triumph That vocation is our faithfulness to the fact that we, think about this, we embody the Messiah himself. The church is his fullness. Not we individually, but we together. Christ is one, but Christ is many, right? Christ has his own life, his own fullness, in the people who share in his life. We embody the Messiah himself, the one who is the seed of Abraham, the one through whom all the families of the earth are blessed. And when we are faithful to our vocation, we are manifesting that triumph of God in Christ in the world. That's what we're called to do. Paul says as he writes to the Corinthians... He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And we are made manifest to God. God knows who we are. God understands. God sees us for who we are. And I hope that we are also made manifest in your consciences. We're not again commending ourselves to you, but we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ constrains us because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. If Jesus died as son of Adam, then all in Adam died in him. 
One died, therefore all died, and he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. From now on, therefore, because of how Christ has dealt with this thing called the human race in his death and resurrection, we no longer recognize any person according to the flesh. The way we did before, according to the natural way of looking and thinking, even though we knew Christ according to the flesh prior to, to the, our, you know, Paul saying, uh, there was a time when I regarded Christ according to the flesh. He says, we know him in that way no longer. And so if any man is in Christ, new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. Not that we reconcile people, but we tell them God has reconciled himself to this alienated world and they need to be reconciled to him. Ministry of reconciliation, namely that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. And so we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God is entreating through us, we beg men on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we would embody the righteousness of God in him. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God to fulfill this work of renewal, this work of cleansing, We are living, breathing witnesses of that. We embody that righteousness of God. We embody that faithfulness. And as we go out into the world, we are the words that we proclaim. We, by our very existence as Christ people, as sharers in him, as embodying him, we, by our very selves, are the living manifest witness of this gospel. We have become that. That's our testimony. And Paul says, you should see that. You should see that in us. Well, saints, this is why and this is the reason in which Jesus is both the center and the substance of his table. He's the one in whom the Passover and all that surrounds it has attained its glorious destiny. This is why what it means that we eat his flesh and we drink his blood, because all of this is yes and amen in him. And it's true of us as we are sharers in him. We are sharers in the destiny that he himself is the first fruits of. And we share in that destiny, though, as awaiting the fullness to come. Hence, we need a continual reminder. The table looks backward, but it looks forward, doesn't it? Do these things in remembrance of me. Do these things until the Messiah comes. When we come to the table, we're testifying that we are sharers in this glorious Passover work of God, this liberation, this deliverance, this ingathering, this renewal, this inhabitation, all bound up in the Messiah himself. And we are sharers in that work by being sharers in him but it does not presently appear what it shall be. And so we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of who we are, and we need to be reminded for our encouragement of the destiny appointed for us. Not something different than now, but the fullness of what has come in him. The outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. But we know that that inner renewal is the promise of what's to come so that we do not look on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is passing. What is unseen is eternal. Let me pray, and then we'll take a couple minutes to meditate before we come to the table. Father, I know this is a lot. I I think for many it's not a lot. For some it might be a lot. But I pray that you would attend to these things in a way that we would be challenged in our thinking that we would not be content to have a superficial, a very narrow, a very simplistic sense 
of the glory that is bound up in this thing that we call the Lord's table, as it even reflects on the glory of of the glorified Messiah. But I pray that you would continue to enlarge our understanding, that you would continue by your spirit and by our mutual ministry and our devotion to the truth in Christ, that we would continue to grow up in all things into him who is the head, that we would faithfully, truly, sincerely bear his fragrance in every place, Not the fragrance of a religion, not the fragrance of morality, not the fragrance of a well-lived life, not the fragrance of, of a better country or a better government, but the fragrance of the triumph of the Messiah, the fragrance of the Messiah himself, and the intent of our good God to sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in him. I pray, Father, that as we grow, those truths would be embodied in us, not merely expressed in our words, but emanating from our very beings, as Paul said, new creation. As we prepare to come to the table, I pray that you will cause these things to bubble up and bring a sense of glory and exultation in our own hearts and minds, that when we come and we receive these elements, that it would be in truth and with all joy, all faith, all hope in believing. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.